Namaste and good evening to all of you. So, let us continue with our attempt of explaining, analyzing, understanding from a yogic standpoint the sayings and the activities of Jesus as a great spiritual teacher of humanity. We were in the middle of an interesting paragraph where Jesus is about to give one of the famous parables, one of the landmark parables that he did. But uh, the text did not start with that. The text started by giving us a bit of a feedback and a bit of a framework of what was Jesus doing, who was with him, what was happening, and we saw this mysterious thing about the condition of the woman, that in Christianity, not only that we know that later in the history of Christianity, there have been lots of women who became saints, who were recognized as saints, but also at the time of Jesus, Jesus in Jesus' congregation, there were women who were participating, listening, learning. Nowadays, when you are in the 21st century, and the balance of masculine-feminine has shifted dramatically, it sounds like it's a common thing. But things were not at all like this in all the five major religions and all the ten minor religions of this planet. And only... In the environment of Jesus, we find the greatest compassion, openness, spiritual openness, which Jesus illustrates somewhere else by saying everybody is invited to the party, everybody is invited to the feast of my father. No, so therefore, men, women would make no difference from the standpoint of such a statement. But otherwise, in religion, there has been a lot of differences. So this was an interesting uh, consideration that I made in the previous satsang. And now we continue. It ended, we ended with saying this sentence reading this paragraph where it says these women who have been mentioned and there are others who have not been mentioned obviously they were helping to support them out of their own means which means which i analyzed a little bit has a lot of collateral meanings to it while a large crowd was gathering and people were coming to jesus from town after town so you know, as I said so many times, even today's Israel is a relatively small country. Like the maximum breadth of it is some places less than 60 kilometers. And that's from the sea to the next country. And thus, um, you know, in a, such a small land, when somebody walks on water and rises people from their coffins from or from the dead state, it's very easy that a huge reputation will go and people in every village will talk and they will say, have you heard that one? Did you hear? So if people would hear naturally that Jesus was in Tongsala, 
everybody would go. I mean, it would be like, why not go? You know, it's like, of course, we want to go and see Jesus live. So, of course, whenever they heard that Jesus was somewhere, now people started coming because he had been going around for more than one year. And the people already knew that this was the most unusual person that you can ever hope to meet in your life. And they were going there. So, of course, Jesus went and the large crowd was gathering, as it, you would expect. And as the people were coming, he gave them the following parable, says Jesus now. A farmer went out to sow his seed. As he was scattering the seed, some fell along the path. It was trampled on, and the birds of the air ate it up. The parable of the seed, the metaphor of using the seed, is a very big one. Because, for example, one of the metaphors commonly used in the Far Eastern philosophy is that the heaven is masculine and that the earth is feminine and that exactly as a man puts a microgram of sperm inside the woman and the woman gets pregnant and develops a whole human being who can be a Jesus or a Milarepa and change the history of the world, so it all starts from a sperm cell, which is not even one microgram. It's nothing. It's a nanogram or something like this. Exactly in the same way, the masculine with a small thing produces a wave effect, produces an avalanche effect in the feminine. And the best analogy used is the rain. The rain is coming from the earth, from, sorry, from heaven, and the earth without the rain cannot produce new plants, new vegetation, or anything. It all depends on this water, but it's a special water. It's water which comes from heaven. The rain water is the most yang type of water, and that's why in some esoteric communities, people were collecting the rain water in as clean as possible conditions, and with the rain water, you would wash your skin, you would wash your hair, you would drink it, you would do different other things because you, even magical ceremonies were done by sprinkling with rain water because the rain water is special. It comes from heaven. Water has many, many other qualities which have not been explored. And if you want to know a little bit more, just look into the research and the uh, world of Victor Schauberger, the Austrian scientist, who discovered that the water moving at right angles, like in pipelines, in pipe systems, or water staying too much in the sunshine, becomes dead, loses a certain form of prana, which is in it, and the consequences would be uh, formidable in so many other ways. So I'm not going there, I don't want to deviate too much in this, but I just want to signal the analogy. It's the parable of the sower and the parable of the seed. And the seed is the rainwater, is the same thing, and therefore the cosmic energy of heaven... So God is sending down his seed and the earth is producing something. Even the body of Jesus is produced from some impulse 
sent into the womb of Virgin Mary, into the body of Virgin Mary. Virgin Mary gets a lightning bolt in her uterus, <clears throat> and then Jesus comes out of that after nine months, nine months later. So it's the same thing, something coming from heaven, <clears throat> very immaterial in a way, but that immaterial thing, you know, if you put the seed of an oak tree, then 30 years later you have a huge oak tree there, you know, and it all started from just a seed which nobody paid attention to. And thus, the parable of the seed is a parable of a cosmic influence, of a spiritual influence. The parable of the seed is also comparable to the very symbol of sperm. The seed is the sperm. The sperm is seed. The sperm is a masculine contribution to the act of life. And at the same time, the seed is a metaphysical symbol. The seed in Sanskrit language is called Bindu. And the tantric science says that the seed must be sublimed because it's very precious and if you sublime it, it will go to Sahasrara and produce spiritual effects and to any other chakra. And at the same time, Bindu is a name which is given even to the dot in the middle of a yantra. Even the dot in a yantra is a Bindu, therefore it's seed. And as such... Uh, this is, and the seed in a yantra is exactly the place where the essence of Shiva is. That's where Shiva irradiates from. That's why, for example, when you'll study the science of yantras, mantras, and uh, the tantric science like the cosmic powers, you will see that the yantras of the cosmic powers, they have no bindu in the middle because they are female. And therefore, they cannot be seed in the cosmic power, as long as she is taken alone, separate from her Shiva, from her male counterpart. It's only the male counterpart that comes with that dot, so the female is everything else, but the male is exactly the essence in the middle. Thus, uh, this parable is very, very rich in many ways, because when he speaks about seed, he implies so many other things. For example, in a religion, it has been great men usually who brought the seed, but then a religion usually survives through women, who even today, if you go in any religious environment, it's mostly women that are faithful than men. Men watch football and drink their beer, and women go to the church and celebrate the Easter night. It's always a majority of women. The women have been impregnated by Jesus, impregnated spiritually by Peter and Paul and John and these guys, and then the religion survives in the earth, in the stability of the earth, the feminine. So there are very, very rich analogies socially, historically, metaphorically, metaphysically, and in many other ways, which starts from this. And here Jesus compares when he says that a farmer went out to sow his seed. The seed 
is nothing else but the message. His message is the seed. The, this parable is itself a seed. So somebody is talking to you. Sometimes there are women who become great gurus. More often there were men in history and they plant the seed. And that seed is more easily going into the feminine or if the soul of the human being, if he is a man, <clears throat> if the soul becomes feminine in front of God. The speaker is not important really. The important thing is that you are connected, God is connected to your soul. And if your soul is feminine, then God is fertilizing your soul like there is sex, love and sex between your soul and God. That's why a great Dutch mystic called Ruisbroek has written a famous book called uh, about the mystic marriages, the marriage of soul with God. Because prayer, meditation, love for God is like you surrender. It's like you spread your legs in front of God, even though you might be a man. That's why sometimes women get this. When women go religious, then they understand very well how to behave with God, because it's like you have to let go, to surrender. Men are more macho and they want to lead and have this personal willpower, <clears throat> and men take longer time to surrender to God. Recently, we were watching a documentary about the life of Bede Griffith, a Catholic priest who became Hindu, and only after 60 years of spirituality, he got a stroke on the left side of the brain, which annihilated his masculine part of the brain to a large extent, and then he became in his mind feminine. And the interview that we saw with him was taken two, three years later. And he said, in these last two years, I have learned more about myself and God than in all the other years of my life put together. Because he had just one problem. He was too intellectual. He was too manly. He was a guy who even looked very young, like he was thin. And no, he was not getting feminine um, like uh, voluptuous, you know, having a belly or something. Even when he was 80 years old, he was thin and wiry and looking very manly in a way. And then he could not surrender to God. And then ultimately the cosmic consciousness gave him a stroke which helped him surrender to God. Even a disease can be a help when it comes at the right time, in the right place, in the right way. So, uh, the soul is female as compared to Shiva, as compared to God. And again, I'm saying here, he is exactly like this. He says, I'm talking to you, and it's like I'm, I'm sowing seeds. I'm throwing seeds in your heart. Unfortunately, he says, the efficiency of this sowing process is very low, because it's not always going as planned. Not everybody is able to receive the word of God in the same way. And he analogously, metaphorically, gives a lot of alternatives. He says, as he were scattering the seed, 
some fell along the path. The path is not proper for agriculture. The path, like you have the path in front of the yoga hall, is hardened. It's with stones and it's beaten. And if you throw seeds there, there's a very little chance that the seeds will catch because it's too hard. And he says some fell along the path and it was trampled on because people walk on the path and they don't care if there are some seeds there. They haven't seen them. They haven't noticed them. It was trampled on and the birds of the air ate it up. If the seeds stay 15 days on the ground, on the surface, and they don't sprout, they just slowly rot, then of course the birds will find them. A seed which goes one millimeter inside the earth, and then in three days it sprouts and it's green already, then the birds don't have any business with it, especially because they don't eat all the plants and all the things. It's a different story. And thus, he says... It felt on not good ground. So I can speak about love and it might not fall on good ground because you would think that everybody wants to discover love, but it's not true. Some people are against love. Some people are afraid of love. Some people consider love to be a form of weakness in which you become too weak and the list could continue. So there are people who do not want to learn love. When the first Christian mystics, missionaries, they went to Japan, the Japanese noblemen and shoguns and this, they crucified Christians for more than a hundred years. They punished them really hard. There is a movie which was remade, which is called something like the voice of silence or the path of silence is something though it has the word silence i don't remember it right now maybe you know it which shows exactly the advent of christianity in japan in 1550 in 1600 it was worse than you can imagine like the nazi concentration camps from the second world war they were a joke compared to what the japanese authorities would do to you if you dared to be christian which was strange. Even in the Mongol, which was a very manipuristic and cruel empire of Genghis Khan, Genghis Khan gave freedom to all the religions, said all the religions are sponsored by heaven, all the religions come from heaven, and therefore everybody can practice their... Of course, they have to pay taxes, They, in military matters they have to obey to me millimetrically but when it comes to religion if somebody wants to worship the little green man from Mars let them worship the little green man from Mars if they think that's their inspiration which comes from heaven and therefore even the Mongols of Genghis Khan gave an almost total religious freedom but the Japanese samurai they were so provoked by this doctrine of love, forgiveness, brahmacharya, and all the things which came with the fundamentalistic Christian teachings, that they simply vowed to destroy it. And they killed lots and lots, not, not as many as the Roman Empire killed in the first centuries, but almost. 
No, they killed thousands and tens of thousands of people in torturing ways just because they dared to be Christian. Yeah? And that's because Manipura, if it's disharmonious, and it was, it hates Anahata. It's afraid of Anahata. It doesn't want to go to Anahata. So don't think that if Jesus is coming and says love, then everybody will fall for it. Actually, when the population was asked, should we give Barabbas or should we give Jesus? They voted for Barabbas. Barabbas was a Manipuristic patriot, a zealot, no? while Jesus was an Anahata hippie. And people loved more Barabbas. They understood Barabbas. They said, this guy has been killing Roman soldiers for us, for our homeland. That we can understand. But Jesus who tells us to love everybody, even the non-Jews and even the Romans, that's a bit too much to swallow. So the seeds are sometimes falling on the path. And on the path is not agricultural land. So we talk about things. You talk to about purity. Purity is one of the lowest factors in the modern humanity. It is so low that the American psychologists five years ago, they decreed that if you try to eat clean food, this is a mental disease. It's in the manual of mental disease of American Medical Association, version number five. It was not there in version number four. But meanwhile, it has been added. It's called orthorexia. Anorexia is when you don't want to eat. And orthorexia is when you want to eat right. You want to eat good. And that's a mental disease. That's not a mental disease. It's the opinion of some idiotic shrinks who have no Vishuddha chakra. It's because Vishuddha chakra is dead in almost everybody. And our society is completely dead about Puritanism. When somebody is Puritan, they are condemned. Like everybody makes fun, let's say in America, about the Amish. The Amish lifestyle has a lot of Vishuddha. Because they don't want to use too much electricity and technology, and they don't want to fuck around, and they don't want to take vaccines for their children, and they don't want to do this, and they don't want to do that, and that's considered to be sick. American Hollywood makes deprecative movies in which the Amish are considered to be weirdos, total oddities. Nobody tells you that the Amish have more than 10 times less autism in their children than the rest of the United States because they don't do vaccines and all that thing. That one, nobody talks about it. But if you want to make a Hollywood movie in which you describe the Amish as sort of idealistic Puritans who live in a dream which is 200 years old, that works and everybody says, that's <laughs> how odd they are. No, These are people with no Vishuddha. Our society has no Vishuddha and no purity. And that's why all the sexual oddities are okay. Everything is okay. 
And if you try to eat clean food, like you say, no, I don't want to eat Monsanto shit, genetically modified food or pesticides, I want to eat food which is bio, then you are orthorexic. You suffer from a mental disease. Like, why can't you be like the rest of us who are ready to go to a fast food and eat some shit? Why can't you be like everybody else? Answer from yoga. Because you have a better developed Vishuddha Chakra and you simply suffer from anything about impurity. Everything which is impure physically or morally, ethically, spiritually gives you negative reactions and you are abhorring it and you want to stay away from it. So that is exactly like a puritanic person comes and says, brothers and sisters, let's all go be pure. And uh, like John the Baptist was a little of a Puritan because he said, repent, repent, make straight the ways of God. You know, that's a form of Puritanism. He was talking in the Jewish community about something which sounded old fashioned. The Jews were spoiled by the Egyptians, by the Greeks, by the Romans. And now Israel had become a very cosmopolitan part of the world where a lot of these honest things preached by Moses a thousand years ago, they were discarded. It was too difficult to live in the way of Moses. That was a lack of Vishuddha. So I use this thing with Vishuddha as an example because Jesus says some fell along the path and it was trampled on. You preach something about Puritanism, all the people that have no Vishuddha will shake their head and you, they will say, what an idiot. And they will just walk further. They trample on your seeds. You are giving seeds to people who are trampling on them. They will not listen. Thus, Jesus is saying, when you say something, part of that message will not be received by the people who don't have a resonance with it. If people don't have a resonance with it, it's like we say it goes in through one ear and it goes out through the other ear. It doesn't stay with you. The same thing here. So some fell along the path and it was trampled on and the birds of the air ate it up. Like a lot of effort was put there. Some puritanic Amish person came and made a temple in New York a conference hall. He spoke there for 30 years. He spoke to 3,000 people. Only one of them became Amish. That means 2,999 people. They trampled on it. And then the birds of the air ate it up. Like this guy got old, he died, and that hall was sold on an auction because they defaulted on the payment and somebody bought it for three pennies, and then it was used as a disco next month. The birds of the air ate it up. Like all the good seeds which were nice and promising, eventually they were eaten by the birds of the air, which means the energy went bust. The energy went to something else. No? It's exactly like in the story, where you build a yoga school and then part of it is eaten by the birds of the air as you know very well. It can be used for something else because you simply cannot sustain it 
financially anymore. So it was trampled on and the birds of the air ate it up. Some fell on rock and when it came up, the plants withered because they had no moisture. These are the people who are superficial. You talk about Jesus and they say, you know what, I didn't believe in Jesus, but after I have learned to Swami Vivekananda for four weeks, I'm going to do something about it. But it's not very deep. It's a superficial decision, either because that person is superficial or because they did not ponder for long enough. Like sometimes some people make friends quickly and then they forget their friends equally quickly. Sometimes some people make friends slowly and then they stay with those friends for the rest of their lives. The same thing is valid here. Falling on rock, it means the quick thing because on rock, if a rain would come, some seeds will sprout, but they cannot go deep inside the rock to plant their roots. And the roots will be extremely superficial. And as soon as there is no rain for three days, then they dry up and they die. Those are the people who come to yoga. They say, oh my God, like I, the typical example is an Arius enthusiastic fellow who came to Agama eight, ten years ago. And when he did some two weeks of Agama, he said, I want to pay for all your curriculum now, till the last level. I want to do all the levels. I, you are not going to take me here with horses. You cannot drag me away. You know, it's like, this is what I've dreamed all my life. And guess what? Five months later, he was not there. I don't even know where he went or what he did. No, he probably found something which he thought was better, faster, Something. He didn't like something in Agama. Something. No. But he was like, oh my God, I'm going to pay $10,000 and get the whole Agama. I'm going to book myself for all your courses and workshops forever. No. Those are seeds which are falling on the rock. Superficially, they get immediately some humidity, something. They sprout and three days later or three weeks later, they are dead. They vanish. So this is why gurus in traditional India and Tibet, they kept people for a long time at the door of their ashram to see if there are not seeds on the rock. No? Like if you keep somebody and if they still want to go deep after six months, after one year, after two years, then you know that this is a seed which has sprouted properly. It's not on a rock. It's not on dry land. So this is illustrating another typology. See, Jesus, with how much inspiration, he illustrates what's happening when a spiritual teacher like he, of course, most teachers are not as big as Jesus, but even when a great spiritual teacher like him comes, what is happening? Sometimes the seed cannot sprout at all because it's on bad land and it's trampled upon and all that. Sometimes the seed falls on rock and then it then they withered because they had no moisture. Like one of the secrets of germination is the fact that the roots being in the ground 
even when it doesn't rain for a few days or even weeks, there is a reserve of moisture inside the earth and the plant can still suck moisture from the earth. So that is superficial. People who have a great start in spirituality, in yoga, they say, oh my God, this yoga is the greatest thing I have ever seen, you know, and then six months later they are not there. No, then why were you so enthusiastic to start with? No, it's a pity. It's a pity to have like a flame made of paper and three seconds later the flame is gone because the paper burns quickly and superficially. Other seed fell among the thorns which grew up with it and choked the plants, like weeds. No, every agriculturer knows that when you plant seeds, like wheat would be very famous in this environment of Jesus because they made bread, oats and other cereals which they used in the Middle East. When you plant cereals, first you have to clean the ground, you have to plow it so that you destroy the roots of all the weeds and everything and then you plant wheat and the wheat will grow generally without weeds. There will still be some weeds and then sometimes some farmers would be so careful as to go and weed the ground meter by meter, weeding it so that they eliminate that competition. Of course, when two grains of wheat are competing with five roots of weed, the weed is sucking quickly the water from the ground and the wheat dries up because it is at competition and they have to share limited resources. And therefore, wheat or other grains, they grow well only when they are in a good environment and without too many weeds competing with that. What are the weeds? The weeds are the worries in our life. You come to yoga and you love yoga and you say, oh my God, this yoga can take you to samadhi. It's a great thing and I do headstand and I can feel its effects and I do pranayama and I can feel its effects and this and that. No, and it works. Like everybody who did yoga for six weeks here in Agama knows that it works, especially when it's authentic yoga and not some gymnastic surrogate. When it's the real yoga, it works. And then some people, you know, they want to do it. But then they have weeds, which means, yeah, but I'm very poor with the money. As much as we try to give scholarships and to give, you know, Agama is famous for this, that people came and told us we have no money, can we do something, you know? And I always told them, Agama is not made for money, although now the school is in a difficult position because of the lack of money, because of the events which have happened. Nevertheless, Agama has not been made by me as a business for making money. No, people are writing on internet that I'm a person who must have deposits of uh, millions and millions of dollars in all sorts of hidden accounts and so on. I don't have money to hire a good lawyer because they ask for more money than Agama has. My money is Agama's money and Agama has a limited amount of money. I'm not going to mention it on a satsang which goes public on internet, but I'm telling you that there is very little of it. No? So if it's so little, 
I would say why don't uh, why made uh, why didn't I make Agama like a money making machine or something? You know, I'm smart enough to create money or something, but I didn't. That was never my purpose. Agama is done so that those of you who have aspiration in your hearts, so that you can have a method and practice it and explore and go deeper and open your higher chakras and experience higher and higher levels of consciousness and see that yoga is for real, that things are actually happening. So there are thorns, like if I am poor, okay, Agama lets me study, gives me a scholarship, but I still need to pay a bungalow. I still need to pay for my food. I still need to pay for this or that. No? And then it's like, no. So then I'm going and saying, Swamiji, I have to go back to Germany to make some money because I cannot afford to live in Kopangan for the next few months. These are the thorns. Somebody says, I do have some money, but I have a child or three children and there is no good school in Kopangan for my children. I dream that my children should study in Oxford or Cambridge or something like this. And I want a real good school for them. And I have to go in my country so I find a real good school because these Thai countryside schools that you find in Kopangan, they are crap compared to what my children need. These are thorns. Somebody comes and says, I'm divorcing from my husband and I have to go back to share the goods, and there is a lot of formality, so I'll come back in one year and a half. Maybe in one year and a half, Agama doesn't even survive, and it won't be here anymore, therefore. And therefore, you say you are going to come in one year and a half, but you presume that God is going to dance a jig the way you dream it, while I always, in such circumstances, recommend this wonderful Greek proverb, which says, how do you make God laugh? You tell him about your plans. <laughs> no. If you want to make God laugh, just tell him what plans you have, and he will laugh, a heartful laugh, because people's plans are almost never fulfilled, because we don't take into account the divine will, the providence, the other things which have a way of their own. And that's why... You see, other seed fell among the thorns. The thorns are mostly the vices. Oh, I would do yoga, but I cannot quit beer. I would love to do yoga, but I, I will not quit smoking. Uh, I would do yoga, but I love eating meat too much. I like to do yoga, but I have no money and I need financial security. When I was in the university, I had a colleague who was arguably, but most probably, number one in that university. He was the smartest, greatest expert in electronics that that university had. And let me know, that university had very big electronic experts. No? And this guy, after he learned yoga for one year or two, he said, you know what my plan is? I'm smart enough in electronics to be, and indeed, he created a company in America, a multi-multi-million dollar company, very successful. And he said, I'm going to California, to Silicon Valley. I will make a million dollars. I will invest it with 
outcome, return, and that means I'm going to have $50,000 every year, which means $4,000 per month, which will make it more than easy for me <clears throat> to study yoga for the rest of my life and reach the state of Samadhi. This man is my age, my generation. He has made his first million dollar many, many years ago. He's stone rich. He lives in a villa with swimming pool and everything in California. He never came back to yoga. He never did his spirit. He forgot somewhere along the way. As soon as he made one million, his monkey mind told, me, told him two would make the deal double. And it would make things so much safer. When he got to two, he probably wanted to have ten. And when he had ten, he somehow didn't ask the question anymore. This is the way it goes. These are the thorns. The thorns are the vices, the misery. The thorns are used as a metaphor excellently by Patanjali in the Yoga Sutra. In the Yoga Sutra, Patanjali describes one of the 30-something uh, paranormal accomplishments in chapter number 3. And he says, the yogi who achieves a perfect samyama, that's a form of meditation, a perfect samyama on Vishuddha chakra. He doesn't say Vishuddha chakra, he says the area of the throat. He says the mud and thorns of daily life don't touch him anymore. It's like you are walking 10 centimeters above the ground, and even if on the ground there are mud and thorns, you don't experience them. This is a Vishuddha chakra thing. Ramakrishna was very pure and puritanic on Vishuddha, and Romain Roland, the French novelist, being an artist and having this intuitive feeling, he was not wrong when he called Ramakrishna the prince of the yogis. Prince among the yogis. Because he had a lot of Vishuddha chakra. And this Vishuddha chakra gives something like a prince or like a princess. It's something very aristocratic, very exclusive. And your feet are not getting dirty. And you are not walking on the ground. And the thorns don't get to your feet. That's a metaphorical way of speaking that if you have this kind of detachment and puritanism on Vishuddha Chakra, then all these things like you say, but I don't have money. And then you say, it doesn't matter. I will live without money. I will live like a hippie. If necessary, I'll take my sleeping bag and sleep on the beach, you know, and so on. The temperature is okay all year round, you know, and I will eat coconuts all the time. There are coconuts that fall off the trees. Just go and chop two coconuts, drink the milk, eat the white thing inside. I can survive even with zero money, you know. I can. This is a way of thinking which is Vishuddha Chakra. Like there are no thorns of life. You know? Swami Shivananda, who also had some Vishuddha, when he wanted to go to India, when his wife died, what did he do? He abandoned his two boys. He didn't abandon them. He left them with his brother and with a lot of money to be raised. But in a certain way, that was crazy. Like his children were the thorns in his life. And because he had Vishuddha, he just plucked out the thorns. He said, no thorns. 
I'm not touched by mud and thorns, which means his aspiration was so big that he had no obstacles. A person would say, but uh, uh, I need to finish my university studies. When I was in the first or second year of university, I proposed to my yoga teacher from that time, and I said, I'm going to go in the forest. I'll never finish the university. It's a complete waste of time. Today, I can tell you the university was a complete waste of time. The fact that I'm an engineer in electronics and I can understand electronics and this is of almost no use to me as a yogi and as a yoga teacher. I can find uh, uh, circumstances, alleviating, mitigating circumstances that, okay, I had to learn a lot of mathematics and physics. And for my Ajna Chakra, that was like good exercise because every six months I had to stop and study for three weeks non-stop to pass the fucking exams. No, And it was good for my Ajna Chakra. But uh, do I use any of that today? Hardly, hardly, hardly. You know, it's like there are a lot of things which I understand, but I don't really use it in any way. And thus, I'm saying there are thorns. Some people say, I need to finish my studies because I need to have a career. What career did Yogananda have? What career did Shivananda have? What career did Mahananda Mai have? What career did Sri Aurobindo have? Sri Aurobindo finished Oxford or Cambridge, I always forget, Gandhi and Aurobindo. One of them was in Oxford and the other one of them was in, Oxford, in Cambridge, but I always forget which one was which. And he, he finished one of these, no? and he finished it with 10. 10 is the maximum mark in the English noting system. Like in America, you will say straight A's, you know. He finished with maximum marks. 10, 10, 10, 10, not a 9. Not a single 9, 10 all over. What was the usefulness of Cambridge or Oxford for Aurobindo when the British put him in prison? And then he became a great yoga guru and he wrote poetry. And now, so what if he took A straight A's or 10's in Cambridge or in Oxford? That's why I say these are the thorns of life that people say, yeah, but uh, I don't know if I, you know. That's because you don't believe in it as much as Shivananda believed in it. That's because you don't believe in it as much as Yogananda believed in it. No, you don't believe in it and then you want to have a safety bridge. If I fuck it up as a yogi, I can always be an engineer in electronics. You know, I can turn back to my education. While for Buddha, it was all or nothing. He just pissed off his parents, his wife, abandoned his child, went into the forest. So the solution for these thorns is a lot of aspiration, and especially a lot of pure aspiration. Two times already we have encountered Vishuddha mentioned in this parable. Here it's like Jesus speaks from Vishuddha, and he says this seed is the speech, therefore it comes from Vishuddha, and these words, I, Jesus, am preaching to you the truth, and if you have some Vishuddha, you will long for it. And then there will be no thorns and no obstacles 
and no superficiality because you will go <coughs> for it. So other seed fell among thorns which grew up with it and choked the plants. You are going to see that because of the message which I personally, in a much, much lower key than Jesus, I'm giving to the world, there are people who converted to yoga, believed in yoga, practiced yoga, are still practicing yoga, and some of them have reached states of samadhi, and some of them will reach states of samadhi in the future months or years. But my message, either on internet like this, or directly in the school, has been going to lots of people. Most of that seed was lost. Most of that seed was lost. It fell on the path, it fell among thorns, it fell on rocks. Like the efficiency of the spiritual message is always limited because you need to have resonance, you need to have attunement. You speak one thing and some people start to cry or shudder or they are touched by it. And the same thing in, for other people, it produces almost no effect or a very short superficial effect of three weeks or something and then it's gone. Even Jesus knows this. He doesn't say it's wrong. He says that's how the world created by God is. That's how things are. He doesn't say it as a reproach, like, oh, you bastards, I'm giving so much seed, and you are, all of you, wasting it, because I'm talking to 5,000 people, and only 50 will become great Christians out of you. That's accepted. It's a sort of an accepted percentage of it, that the spiritual message addresses many people, but only a few are answering to it. Somewhere else, he says it in another way, where he says, many are called, but few are chosen. Not everybody becomes chosen, just because they heard the message. People, thousands of people went to listen to him. It was not comfortable to leave your home and walk 30 kilometers to stay with Jesus and there maybe you'll have food, maybe you'll not have food, maybe it will be raining, maybe it will be too hot, maybe it will be too cold in the night. No, people went anyway. So people must have had something in their hearts. But for many of them may have been just a curiosity, you know, like, wow, let's see this strange guy. Maybe he is rising another dead man and we are going to be witnessing it with our own eyes. No, that's a sort of a useless curiosity which they had. And that's why Jesus accepts it. He knows, he says, I'm talking to you and 50 of you will become really big in this lifetime. And maybe another 500 will become average. And the others, in 10 years, they will even forget that they ever met me. Why do masters then do this? Like Krishna, they say, if we put the seed with you, 
it might stay there until your next life. And some people might become spiritual in the next life because they heard the satsang in this life. And therefore, it's, it's worth it. It's worth it to spread the seed. Please do not lose, miss the analogy between this and the actual seed for a man. Of course, women have seed as well. It works just slightly different. But the principle in Brahmacharya, the principle of Brahmacharya is the same. Because if Jesus would be masturbating and spraying his seed on rocks and trees, he would not have seed to give from Vishuddha. Like his speech would not be strong and spiritual. It's the same seed. The seed has to come here so that it becomes words of spirit. So it becomes loaded with power, with efficiency. So some seed fell on the ground, on the path, and it was trampled on and eaten by the birds. Some fell on the rock and it had a short life. Some of it fell among the thorn and later it was choked by the weeds, by the thorns. Still, other seed fell on good soil. Those are the real disciples. And he said, still other seed, so there's always a percentage, which falls on good soil. It came up and yielded a crop a hundred times more than was sown. Because that's the miracle of agriculture. You put one grain of wheat and it makes a bunch of grains, which is like 50 grains or a hundred. So you sow one, you get a hundred. So Jesus sowed the message to a number of people. Twelve of them became carriers of the message. But 400 years later, all of the Middle East and all of Europe, to a large extent at least, was Christian already. So this is how the seed multiplies. It's a miracle. Jesus is giving very simple analogies from farming, from agriculture, so that simple people can understand it. So he says, but there are seeds which cannot sprout nowadays. All this Monsanto and all these genetically modified crops you cannot sprout them again. If you throw them in good soil, they will not sprout because they are not divine. The word of Jesus sprouted and sprouted and sprouted and sprouted and sprouted even against adversity. Even when the Christian people were assassinated badly, the word of Jesus still multiplied. And why? Because it had a very good DNA but a message like, how long do you think there will survive the Church of Scientology? Created by a half-crazy guy called Ron Hubbard. It will not survive for long, I promise you. No? Because it has no divine power in it. Ron Hubbard was not an enlightened prophet of God, so that he would give a message that will go further. At the best, Ron Howard... Ron Hubbard, was a brilliant psychologist. As a psychologist, he was really, really something. But with the psychology, you cannot create a religion which will last even 500 years. Jesus' goes for 2,000 years 
and for some people it still goes strong. Buddha's message after 25 centuries still goes strong. Muhammad's message after 14 centuries still goes strong. And Patanjali's Yoga Sutra after 2000 years is still being read and commented and it is still a guideline for people practicing yoga. And that's why I'm giving you all these things to understand that there are so many analogies with this word and with the seed, that the seed is the word, the word is a seed and it contains germinating power in it or not. And it's a healthy, good brand of seed or not. And that it falls in good soil and it multiplies. So this is When he had said, when he said this, he called out. He says, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Because Jesus was always talking obliquely or often, not always. And uh, he said, this is a parable. I hope you get the point. But he was not explaining nevertheless. That's very interesting. His disciples asked him what this parable meant. So now we come to the inner circle. Even around Jesus, he speaks obliquely to the masses and then to the disciples, they have the right to ask for a gloss. They have the right to ask for explanations. So he gives them the esoteric, the inner circle, because that's what esoteric means, the inner circle, the inside the circle explanation. So they, even the disciples who were used with him they said, what does it mean? What are you talking about? Sowing seeds and so on. He said, the knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of God has been given to you. But to others, I speak in parables. So that though seeing, they may not see. And though hearing, they may not understand. The last two sentences are from a prophet, I don't know which one of them, probably Isaiah, when they say, he said, people will be seeing, but they will not see. People are looking, people will be looking, but they will not see. People will be hearing, but they will not understand. Isaiah predicted this, that in religion, there will be people who even when they will be seeing things, like Jesus walking on water or something, still they will not get it. Still it will not go inside their hearts. And people who will be hearing such amazing message from Jesus, and still they will not understand. And Jesus, don't think that he is an enthusiastic hippie and he doesn't know what he is doing. He knows very well and he sounds almost cynical, almost terrible, because he says, I know that most people don't understand everything of what I'm saying. And people say, but Jesus, if you are so fucking loving and compassionate as you claim to be, then why don't you go back to the people and say it again in a more clear way so that the peasants from Galilee, they can understand what you said, because otherwise they will come and say, and they will say, oh, there came this guy and he said something about sowing seeds and... It was very beautiful, but I didn't understand shit of what he meant to say. No? 
Like then what's the usefulness of going and seeing such a man? Because this man is fishing souls, right? He wants to see who resonates, who listens, who understands. And he has a gift to give to the whole planet. But that gift is his own blood when he dies. That's the gift. For the rest, he has something else he wants to say or do. And he knows it and he says... The knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of God has been given to you. That's why, see, the Bible never explains clearly what's the story with these apostles. These apostles, they are the inner circle. And it's not here which first time Jesus tells it to them. It was well known. A teacher, they call him teacher, teacher in uh, Aramaic or Hebrew in those days. This was rabbi, rabbi. No, and they are telling him, Rabbi, Rabbi, we go, you know, and everybody calls him a teacher. But then Jesus says, you are accepted. You are a disciple. Yeah? And in this way, uh, he tells them, when they are disciples, they say, what will I get if I am your disciple? And Jesus tells them, in the evening, after I talk in parables to the whole crowd, I'm gathering the 50 of you who are my inner circle and I'm explaining to you deeper. I'm explaining these things to you so you can understand them properly. It's exactly what I am doing here. The satsang in this condition is addressed to the whole world. But those of you who participate in the yoga courses, you know that a lot of other things are being explained to you. One more interesting than the other, one more esoteric than the other, one more amazing than the other. And the reason is because when you are a disciple, when you are a pupil in a school, then your degree of knowledge goes because that grows because that's the inner circle. So Jesus knows and Jesus says, you know, you are my close disciples. And therefore, he says, the knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of God. This kingdom of God sounds as a very hippie thing. Hey, ye, hey, all, come to the kingdom of heaven. Jesus is preaching the kingdom of heaven, and you all come and so on. But then look what Jesus says. The knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of God. So the kingdom of God is not so easy as it sounds. That's a sort of advertising for all. It's like we are selling Colgate. No? And then you have an advertising where you say Colgate is good for all. You know? But then there are more detailed things than that. You know? This what Jesus does is the PR action. He speaks to the whole world. And he tells them, I give you good tidings. The kingdom of God is at hand. So why doesn't everybody get the secrets of the kingdom of God? Because apparently there are secrets. And everybody who studied yoga for long enough knows that there are lots of secrets. Because it doesn't, it's a, it's a technical thing. No? And why doesn't everybody get them? Because not everybody fulfills the conditions of coming close to the Guru. These people had come close to Jesus. They were like his friends. Jesus calls themselves, sometimes he calls one of the apostles or another, friend. Friend, listen to me, listen to this. If Jesus tells you, friend, 
And Jesus is supposed to be God. You know, you are a friend of God. God calls you friend, my friend. It's, it's more than you can ever hope. You know, it's like, oh my God. You know? So, Jesus is telling very clearly that not all the knowledge is given outside. There are layers of knowledge. So, he says, but to others... I speak in parables so that, as Isaiah said, though seeing they may not see, though hearing they may not understand. The Jewish tradition had so many other things. Kabbalah, for example. Traditionally, Kabbalah is for men Jewish over 40, over the age of 40. That was the original rule for Kabbalah. No? So, therefore, it's not for everybody. And of course, among the Jewish men who are over 40, not everybody will want to study Kabbalah. And that's why in a Jewish community of 10,000 people, there will probably be 10 or 15 who study Kabbalah. No? That's, that's an inner circle. It's the esoteric path in the middle of it. So in the beginning, at this point of his mission, Jesus makes a very clear distinction of the fact that he talks, but he doesn't always talk very clearly. He talks in parables, as it's usually called, and uh, he does it consciously and deliberately. He says, oh yeah, I am talking in parables, so that most people will actually not fully understand what I meant by that. This is the meaning of the parable. So now we know, because Jesus himself has explained it, and Luke has picked it up from one of the apostles and has put it in the Gospel of Luke. But we are also told some places in the Bible that there are many other things which Jesus told to the apostles and they never came to be written in the Gospels. Some of them maybe because the Gospel authors didn't want or they are not part of it or they forgot. And we have Gospels like the Gospel of Peter, the Gospel of Thomas, the Gospel of Mary Magdalene, the Gospel of the Twelve, the Gospel of Truth, and many, many others which are not part of the official Bible. And there you find other wonderful statements made by Jesus that enrich what you find here in the official Bible. And that's why... This is very important. Many people were annoyed and they, why in Agama you make so much secret and people can't tell you about what they study into higher levels. That's the structure of the spiritual teaching. I didn't invent it. All the gurus from India and Tibet have done that and we cannot break that law because that law is a karmic law. It makes that people should earn their right to get to some knowledge. Even then, they are not always worth of it, no? Judas was one of the twelve apostles, and still he idiotically betrayed Jesus, no? So in the same way, there are many other people who went deep into yoga, tantra, or other things, and then they have done stupid things. And thus, it's not a guarantee all in all, but at least it is an attempt to create some structure, a pyramid-like structure of learning and revelation. This is the meaning of the parable. Then Jesus 
openly explains it to them. The seed is the word of God. And God said, let there be light. This is the word of God. It's Vaksidi from Vishuddha. If you remember that Vishuddha can create this incredible city that what is spoken becomes reality. Those along the path, so the word of God which fell on the path, are the ones who hear and then the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts so that they may not believe and be saved. People are reproaching to me that I sometimes say that some people behave like they are demonized or possessed by demons. And they think I'm doing it to just manipulate people, you know, to just throw a bad blame on it. This parable and this model of looking of the world is used extensively by Jesus. So Jesus says, somebody can talk to you about the kingdom of heaven, and then the devil, maybe not the devil personally, but through his minions, is coming and fucking up with your mind. So three hours later, you lost it. Two hours later, he's about ah, bullshit, you know, and so on, you know. And that's it. So please realize, not because of me, I say it. Jesus says there are demonic and diabolic forces which can screw your mind that one minute you hear the word of God and the next minute or the next day you forgot it, you dropped it. He says, <clears throat> and the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts so that they may not believe and be saved. If the word would stay, they would start believing and if they would believe, they would make efforts and they would obtain results and then they would reach a certain degree of accomplishment, which will mean that they will reach some degree of salvation in the language of the Bible. So, Jesus says, there are devils who will take the understanding from your mind so that you cannot reach salvation. Because the devils say, you belong to us for another 5,000 years. Na, 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 na. You are not getting away so easily because you listened to Swami Shivananda or you listened to Jesus and now you are suddenly going to get grow wings on your soul. Na, 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 na. Your soul belongs to us. Your karma keeps you with us. And then what's happening is that the seed has fallen on the path. And believe me, there are demons which twist the mind of a person in 24 hours and less. I have seen it in my yoga life for the last 35 years, pretty much all the time. In every country where I have been and wherever I taught yoga, I have seen it happening. And in the recent events of Agama, those of you who were part of them, you've seen it happening. People that you would have never believed, the next minute the devil had twisted their minds. It's not because I send devils to twist their minds. It's because that's the way God is administering evolution. Evolution is a sort of a natural selection. Not everybody becomes a Buddha. 
You have to be one of the better ones to be a Buddha. You have to compete for it. You have to be... It's exactly like they practice in American universities. I remember when I saw it first time, I couldn't believe it. It sounded so unfair. No? I, I still don't like it, but it's there. If you will follow a scene in the... Um, what's the name? These guys who stop their heart to experience near-death experience. They remade the movie two years ago, but it was the original one. Anyway, it doesn't matter. You know what? I'm going to find it for you. The name. Yeah, it will come to me anyway. And uh, there, there is an exam. There's a group of doctors in medical school. Second year, third year, fourth year. And the teacher, who is a university professor in medicine, he tells them, we are going to have an exam. <clears throat> and in this exam, there will be three A's, three B's, and no more than 15 graduates. Like he tells them, even if all of you perform perfectly, I will give three of you A, three of you B, and then the 15th is the last which passes the exam. The last 10 don't, don't pass the exam. But what if we are extraordinarily good? It's not only that you have to pass the exam. It's also that you have to be the first, the second, the third, the fifth, and the tenth. And if you are the twentieth, it's not good enough for this university. The number twenty does not graduate. No? So it's the same here. Remember, only twelve people graduated to be apostles. Twelve. And more people were with Jesus than twelve. Ramakrishna also had 12 disciples. Only 12 got the state of Samadhi communicated by Ramakrishna personally. Not the others. So there is a natural selection. So it's a bit tough. It's almost scary. That's why, remember, God <coughs> is frightful. The Jews were completely shitless scared of God. <clears throat> Precisely because <clears throat> God has this cosmic dimension. Compared to God, we are just grains of dust. And we don't present much importance. And things go by the numbers. If God says, I need 12 apostles, who will those be? Well, the first 12. What about number 14? He was a great guy. Yeah, still only the first 12 become apostles. You know, isn't that cruel? Not for God. Not from the standpoint of God. It's just a sort of a natural selection. So God, in this way, even Jesus, He has no mercy. He apparently has no pity. Oh, Jesus, you are talking to the outside people and you know that they will not understand everything you say. How cruel, how terrible of you. But Jesus sees Himself as loving and as the Son of God. Because God has this policy that evolution has no shortcuts. Evolution has no favors to be done. You have to earn your right to be where you are. And that's why... Look, listen to this again, how terrible it sounds that the 
seeds are fallen along the path are the ones who hear and then the devil comes and takes away the word from their heart so that they may not believe and be saved. That's why please remember what you think is not your property. You only think that your thoughts are your thoughts. But if some people despised Jesus, it was not their thoughts. It was the devils who took the faith out and put some dirty thoughts in their minds. Therefore, the problem of human existence, the problematic of human existence, is much, much tougher than what it looks. Because there will be people who will be immediately manipulated by demonic forces. And modern people, they don't want to believe in the demonic forces. Believe me, I'm saying it as somebody who has been in spirituality for more than 35 years. The demons, as well as the dark angels of hell, they exist and they manifest day and night. We are lucky that up in heaven there are some very special rules of engagement and they are not allowed to do whatever they want to do. There are some limitations. Exactly as a country can have a quota in immigration and say we never take more than 100 immigrants per year. Not 101, 100, you know. And there are some, these are some rules of engagement. Exactly like this, between humans, angels, demons and other levels, there exist some laws of engagement, which most of you don't know anything about and you are even afraid to ask questions to find out which are those rules of engagement. But other people, like even I myself, know about a hundred times more than you do about these rules of engagement and how the game is being played. Even I sometimes cannot say that I understand all the rules of engagement. No, maybe Jesus understands all of them, but, you know, so I'm not claiming that I can tell you everything about it, but theoretically, if I would have a course in demonology or something like this, I could tell you frighteningly much. You would be shocked about how much is there. So, yes, there are demons or devils, call them whatever you want, the concept is very fuzzy and I'm not going into it, which can simply wipe out your mind clean that tomorrow you forget something which you have heard today. And people say, but then why are we guilty? Is there no way? There is a way. For example, tonight when you go home, before you go to bed, fall on your knees and tell to God, I've heard something so important tonight. Please, please, with all my heart and with all my devotion, I'm begging you, don't let any demons or devils wipe my mind clean tonight or in the coming years. Please let me never forget. Then if you ask the help of God, because God is your loving Father, He will intercede and it will not happen. No? But otherwise, you are here in this hall now, whatever, 10, 12 people, it's possible that in one week, two of you have forgotten. 
what has been said here tonight. Huh? And it's because of that. Because somebody nasty came and wiped your mind. Why? So that they can possess you in the future further on. So that you can be their slave in the future. Because ignorance is the source of all <coughs> the breakdown, all the spiritual breakdown. So the first category are those where the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts so that they may not believe and be saved. Because theoretically, everybody can believe, everybody can have aspiration, because everybody has an Atman, a divine soul, and everybody will be saved. But before you pray to God to be saved, the devil makes you forget. Before. Quickly. Then nothing happens. It's frightening. It shows how little freedom actually exists in the human life. Our only freedom is to pray for support, to meditate for support, to invoke, to consecrate, to bless, to always ask for the higher support. Because without the support of Jesus, of the angels, of Shambhala, of the Buddhas of the past, present and future, and other spiritual realms like that, we are cannon fodder. We are eaten alive. Luckily, there are these rules of engagement in which the divine consciousness created a sort of a, a game with many, 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 many complicated rules. So, you know, they are not, it's not easy for a demon to come and possess you. Because if it could, my goodness, the demons would do it all day long, full on, full on. But it's not possible for them as well. There are a lot of rules to be fulfilled. And that's why the human beings are on the verge in the crossfire between the angels and the demons. And your soul has to take the ultimate decision where you want to go what you want to do with your life. That's why Jesus was clever when he said, he who is not with me is against me. If you are not with the angels, the demons will immediately take over you. There is no neutral zone where you sit and pick up your nose. And you say, I'm neither with the angels nor with the demons. I take a break. There isn't such a place. Only lazy, tamasic people imagine that there is such a place because they want to sit and do nothing. And they want to justify their laziness, saying, right now I'm in a middling position and I don't go neither to the left nor to the right. You are wrong. You are already going to the left. If you don't go to the right, you are going to the left. There is no way of staying in the middle. There's no middle position. That's very important, very frightening. Those on the rock, so the seeds which fell on the rock and sprouted quickly, died quickly, are the ones who receive the word with joy when they hear it, but they have no roots. This is so profound, you know? One of the strongest aspiration is usually had by people that have a strong Muladhara Chakra. I say it, in our levels of yoga, that sometimes people with Muladhara Chakra, they have a very strong spiritual aspiration for a variety of reasons, which I'm not going to detail here. 
Interesting. Jesus says there are people who cannot, they have no root, so they cannot keep it for long. So you need a certain vitality. You need a certain grounding so that you can have roots and push and push and push like a stubborn plant that plants roots. And even when the soil is very hard, the plant is stubbornly, stubbornly, stubbornly creating a root, having a root. It's very difficult without a root. But that goes on metaphorically. If you don't have a spiritual root, it is possible to go into a state of superconsciousness, and because you have no roots, neither cultural or ethnic or spiritual, like you don't belong to a clear spirituality, some things don't click in your soul. Let's say you are a Christian monk or nun, and you pray and pray and reach a state of samadhi. And then you know what's happening, you have a root, you know that Jesus has come to you, you know that you are having a connection with the kingdom of heaven, and things are happening. But when they are happening out of the blue, like for example, the eminent American poet and philosopher Walt Whitman experienced states of samadhi. And his family and he thought that he was afflicted by madness, that he was partly crazy. He was not so crazy. He was crazy for God. He was a divine madman. If he would have been born in Tibet and have done Tibetan yoga, if he would have been born in India, and if he had that state, his guru would have told him immediately, congratulations, Walt, you are great in yoga. You are doing very well. You know, and it's this and it's that. Do again. Tomorrow try again and see what's happening, you know. But because he had no root, yeah, not to mention that not only that he didn't have a good religion, he may have had some Protestant Christianity, but Protestant Christianity itself has no roots. It's a Christianity without roots. And then uh, he had no roots ethnically being in America. The American culture is desperately trying to grow some roots because it's been American only for a century and a half or so. Only after the War of Independence and after the Civil War, America can say that it became America. No? So it's not comparing it with Italy, where Rome was created a thousand years before Christ, and there are even older Etruscan traditions before the creation of Rome, and the people living in Italy have roots ethnically, culturally, and then Christian religion and everything, no? then other people don't have much roots. There are nations with roots and nations which have not so much roots. So Jesus here mentions metaphorically because the speech of Jesus is with multiple levels. And he says, you may have some joy about spirituality, but you have no roots. And no roots means a lot of things, from Muladhara Chakra to ethnic and cultural roots. They believe for a while, but in the time of testing, they fall away. What? Oh, Jesus is mentioning the testing, right like this, between the lines. He doesn't insist of it. He says they believe 
But in the time of testing, they fall away. Also, there comes a time of testing. Really? Mm, Agama Yoga, right? There comes a time of testing, and maybe it comes ten times over, again and again, right? There comes a time of testing. I keep telling to people since years and years, be careful because whoever is a spiritual practitioner is subjected to tests. Either I will test them, which is happening very seldom, very seldom do I choose to give tests, simply because I don't want to be part of that, and not because it's wrong, but because I don't want to assume that I am a big-headed guy who has the right to test you. We are in the 21st century, and uh, you live your lives and you do your thing. No? But Jesus tells it very clear. Not he says that sometimes. He says those who are on the rock, they have joy when they hear it, but they believe for a while, but in the time of testing they will fall away. Which means there is compulsorily, it's 100% that there is a time of testing. Please remember this. It's one of the things that you want to keep in your heart when you go from here tonight. If you want to just have a little bit of spirituality. Oh, I wake up every morning and five minutes I say the Gayatri Mantra. Yeah, even that is a nice spirituality. It's good. Do it. But you will never become like Ramakrishna if you do five minutes of Gayatri Japa in the morning. That's a practice which, I'm sorry to say, it, it sucks compared to what is needed to become like Swami Shivananda. Much more is needed for becoming like Yogananda. And therefore, remember that if you do a little bit of spirituality, you say, mm, will my faith ever be tested? Maybe. You know that there are people, they were young, they were full of faith, and 30 years later you find, you find them dead drunk in a pub. They are drunk every day of their lives, and they live the lives of subhuman animals, you know. They drag themselves to the shit all day long. No? So even those people are tested. At least, can you have a simple thing like, do you know somebody who was born as a simple person with a little bit of faith, a little bit of religion? They practiced five minutes per day or whatever. They tried to have a moral and ethical self-discipline. They went to church on Sundays. They did something. And they stayed like this until they were 85 and died. That's a person who passed some tests. Somewhere in their life, there was an attempt to take them off the path. Even such simple people, they will have a test. But when people are doing two hours of spiritual practice per day, then they are going like this. And then surely, 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 there will be tests. We speak about spiritual tests. To everybody who goes in the level number four, five, six in Agama, because they need to know. When people are in the level one, two, three, it's hard to presume that there will come tests just in the first 90 days of spiritual practice or something like this. It's okay. People are just warming up. 
But as people get on the path, then everybody has to know somewhere along the road, the road will get bumpy. There will be bumps along the road. They must be there. Because even Jesus says, when tests will come, like tests will surely come. It's not if tests will come. He says, when tests will come, then in the time of testing, they fall away. The seed that fell among thorns stands for those who hear, but as they go on their way, they are choked by lives, worries, riches, and pleasures, and they do not mature. Like you talk to somebody about Brahmacharya, but they say, oh, I love ejaculation too much to practice Brahmacharya. Then you heard the word of Shiva, but you are not, you are choked by the thorns. You had so much lust, you had so much uncontrolled sexual desire that you were unable to deal with your own sexual energy. Or you start stealing because you have a tendency for theft, or you start being violent because you have some frustrations and some samskaras which make you violent and you did not correct those yet, or other and other things. You don't manage to be detached, to practice aparigraha, something, and you will not. These are the thorns. The thorns means all the miseries of life, all the inferior things of life. I had pupils here in Agama who did not dare to fast for five days. Fast, like not eat. We had a ritual for men in Vira groups, the rites of passage, and there men were asked to fast just water, nothing else, for seven days. It's not so difficult, believe me. I know people, there is somebody in the island here, there's one Israeli fellow, he did 49 days with water. 49. No? So, seven days, it's nothing, it's a joke. We don't even get warmed up properly in nine day, in seven days. No? I have seen paranoid people, another Israeli person, funnily enough, but who was a Virgo and who was very afraid of everything, very hypochondriac, typical Virgo hypochondriac frequency. And he said, but what if I die? What if my bowels get entangled? What of this? He did three days, then the symptoms were so strong, he didn't dare. He gave it up. He didn't do the rites of passage because he didn't dare to fast for seven days. These are the thorns of life, the needs of your body, the animal nature of your body, the wish for money, security, relationships. There were women when their boyfriend left Agama, they said, sorry, I have to go with my boyfriend. But Mary Magdalene stayed with Jesus, not with her boyfriend. Other women were quoted there last week. They stayed with Jesus, not with their husbands or boyfriends. So they made a choice which was not easy to make. And therefore, these are the thorns, all the worries of life. And I gave you so many examples. And here Jesus says, life's worries, riches, it also goes on the nice side, and pleasures, 
and then the seed does not mature. It can't grow. Like you will have some spiritual impulse, but it will be choked sooner or later. Finally, Jesus concludes saying, but the seed on good soil stands for those with a noble and good heart who hear the word, retain it, and by persevering, produce a crop. How do you produce salvation? By persevering. You have to have a noble mind and heart, good heart. You hear the word, you remember it, you don't, it doesn't go out. You stay with it, you, you dwell on it, and then by persevering. The wheat is very perseverant, is very persevering. Slowly, slowly, one millimeter every day, it pushes and pushes and grows and grows. And sometimes it's too much rain. Sometimes it's too little rain. Sometimes it's this. And, so, and the wheat, like any other good plant, is struggling and struggling and struggling until it becomes mature and it produces the fruit. The fruit is the state of samadhi in yoga. The fruit is the state of enlightenment. In Christianity, the, the fruit is the kingdom of God. And therefore, Jesus says, when you hear, you should grasp it and be stubborn, stubborn, dead stubborn on it. Don't stop, don't stop before you try, try again, like that poem of Nansen, I think, or whoever, or Rudyard Kipling, one of those, he wrote that poem which obsessively and childishly goes like, if at first you don't succeed, try, try again. No, like stand up, that's exactly what the tantric dictum says. Falling, drinking and drinking and falling to the ground and standing up and drinking some more, this is how one reaches the state of nirvana. People interpret it that you have to drink yourself to death like it's an alcoholic, samadhi, but it's metaphoric. They mean drinking and drinking the doctrine, the practice, the grace of God, and sometimes you fall to the ground, no? like you see in Agama, things sometimes seem to fall to the ground, and standing up and dusting yourself and drinking some more, this is how one reaches the grace, the wisdom. Therefore, this is what I'm telling to you, to the parable of the sower is very profound because it says that from time to time the word of God is given as it is happening in satsangs as well. And for some people, the devils, the demons interfere too quickly. For some people, there are no roots, whatever that means. It's so many things there. Meditate if you have roots, for example not only social or ethnically, but also as a person. If you are a person with roots, ready to push, then for some people there are the worries of life. I met people who told me, I cannot do my yoga be before I clean in my room. And I have met fanatics of yoga who said, bullshit, you can throw me in the most messy warehouse in this world. I clean up two meters around myself. I do my yoga. I don't care about shit what is around me. No? The people who are focused more on the outside, 
they depend too much on the environment. Those are thorns. Oh, yeah, but, you know, then I cleansed very much in my bedroom. Then it was 11 o'clock. I had to go to bed because I was too tired to meditate. No, you should start with the meditation. And if there is time afterwards, then you do some cleaning. No, that's the priority. Because if you die, it's better to die with the meditation done than with cleaning your room done. If you die tonight, meditation is better than cleaning the room. No, so that's why, no, uh, understand the priority yeah, with uh, this one with the weeds, with the thorns. It's about the priorities in your life. For Swami Shivananda, yoga was more important than his children. He just dumped his children and went to India and the hell with it. You know, he simply could not care less. He just went 110%. This is how you make Buddhas. This is how you make Sarada Devis and people like this, you know, to mention a female name to show you that it's the same for men and women from the standpoint of the soul. So, uh, this is the famous parable of the sower and it's beautiful because for the ones for whom it catches, it produces fruit hundredfold. What was given to you is multiplied by a hundred in your noble soul and in your noble heart because you practice, you discover, you experience and then you have a lot to tell to the world. You have a lot to say. Then you can give seeds to others as well. Remember the parable from Laya Yoga that a mantra has to be given like from somebody who has it. It's like a seed. It's the same thing. The mantra is also the word of God. Mantras are sacred words. Mantras are words of power. Mantras are archetypal words of this universe. It's the same. If you don't preserve your mechanical seed and if you are not persevering, it will not be possible to produce a hundred seeds to give them further on. So the parable is very clear. There is a beautiful process of growth. Remember ultimately, as above, so below. Even a simple parable from farming is like human evolution. Things are always similar. We live in a sort of a holographic universe where everything is similar to everything in a mysterious way. That's why this parable is very, very beautiful. And Jesus will continue it with something equally amazing. He is in a great shape. And he starts with the parable of the sower and then immediately he continues with another one. Here is another one. Take this one as well, you know. And he gives and gives amazing things. But the parable of the sower shows how the spiritual influence is being propagated. No? And Jesus says the word and a lot of people did not listen to it. Or they listened but they never heard it. This says it all. This says everything. Who those people were, what resonance was in their hearts and minds, and why they met with Jesus. But you know, Jesus spoke 
even to the high priests who were the most educated religious people in Israel in those days. And he spoke to them and all they could do was despise him and hate him and be afraid of him. They never resonated and say, Sir, everybody says you are an extraordinary man. Tell us a little bit more. You know, it's this, it's that. Tell us more, you know. It didn't work that way, far from that, as you will see the events of his demise, far from that. So, meditate carefully on the parable of the sower and see what divine words did you hear. You read the Bible, you read the Bhagavad Gita, you read the Yoga Sutra, have you been to satsangs by some gurus, have you watched on video some satsangs or words from Swami Shivananda or Vivekananda the Great or others and others, have you done, you know, are those words with you? Do they stay with you? Do they motivate you? Are you producing fruit? Are you persevering? Did you catch roots? Are you stubborn in your spirituality? That's what will give the results. In a certain way, it's so easy and so natural and so simple. But in another way, as you can see, spirituality, especially in Kali Yuga, is a big adventure. And sometimes it's even a bit of a painful adventure as well. And thus, uh, think, evaluate and search your own heart to see where you are, where are you, who are you, in this process of the parable of the sower. And remember, Jesus was very aware that normal people don't understand the depths of his metaphors, and he was okay with it. The great, loving Jesus was okay with the fact that only a limited number of people will understand to the bone, will understand to the core, to the utmost. For the others, he knew it is the law of God that there is a pyramid structure of evolution. Enough for tonight. I have spoken enough. I'm glad I've covered this fundamental parable and trying to understand it from a yogic standpoint. I will explain probably even more when I'll warm up next week for continuing with it. But enough for now. Remember Always when you have questions coming from such a satsang, uh, the place of questions is always in the Q&As on Tuesdays because in the satsangs I don't address, I don't take any questions for being able to just lecture freely. With this we have stopped for tonight. Thank you all for resisting and uh, see you in the next activities here in Agama. With this we have finished for tonight.